you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands so you can hear the Word of God but also follow along with your own eyes. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift to you uh, today. We're studying the book of Hebrews together on uh, Sunday mornings, and we come now to chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, prince of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning prince of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man, Melchizedek, was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham." But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and further blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And here mortal man receives tithes, but there he re- uh, uh, men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi who receives tithes, speaking of the Levitical priesthood, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father Abraham when Melchizedek met him. And therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things were spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our God, our Lord, rose from the tribe of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there comes another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Wow. Let me just catch my breath for a moment. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who has said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest, speaking of Messiah of Jesus. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And by so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. 
And also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. And therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Now, someone might be thinking, oh, great, this is the one Sunday I brought my friend to church. I don't even understand what was just read, let alone what the sermon might be like. It's a very rich passage. We'll try to make it simple. The truths are very important for everyone to understand. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this passage as we thank you for every description of our Savior in your word. And Lord, we want to just let you know that we are grateful to have our lives fashioned by your truth and by your Holy Spirit. We don't want to think about the kind of people we would be apart from the fashioning that comes from those two great sources. Thank you, Lord, for making us into the people that you're making us into more and more like Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you take this passage, open it up to us, Lord, and produce an even greater appreciation in our hearts for our Savior and an even greater longing to be conformed into His image. And we ask these things in His name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In chapter 5, the writer of the book of Hebrews declared Jesus to be a superior high priest to Aaron, who was the first high priest, Old Testament high priest of Israel. And the writer declared him not only to be a superior high priest to Aaron, but also to all of the high priests that followed in Aaron's bloodline. And he gave several reasons why, which can basically be summarized in two points. First, because of the superior access that Jesus has to God the Father. He sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He has an access to God that none of the Old Testament priests had. And second, he is superior because of the access to heaven that he has provided to each of us as Christians, as we have made him our high priest. Not only does Jesus have a superior access to uh, then the high priest to God, but also he provides those that are under him as a high priest with a greater access to the Father as well. And Jesus has turned the throne of an infinitely holy God into a throne of grace for sinners. And that is no small thing to have uh, accomplished, a throne that we can approach, approach any time day or night, and as often as we like. Now, the writer 
then anticipated the question that any Jewish reader of this letter would have immediately asked. And maybe you thought of it last week as you were listening to the sermon. And here's the question that he anticipates. How can Jesus be a high priest when he is of the tribe of Judah and not of the tribe of Levi? Because the Old Testament priests were all of the tribe of Levi and even more specifically of the bloodline of the high priest uh, of Aaron. How can he be the high priest and not of the tribe of Levi and of Aaron's bloodline? Doesn't the fact that Jesus was of the tribe of Judah completely disqualify him from ever being considered a high priest? Now, that's a good question. That's a really, really good question. The writer reminds us that the Levitical or the Aaronic priesthood is not only, is not the only priesthood that is God-ordained and mentioned in the Old Testament. There is a second priesthood that God speaks of, and it is a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, the background concerning Melchizedek is encapsulated in verses 1 through 3, and it summarizes a much fuller account of Melchizedek that is given in Genesis chapter 14. Following a great uh, military victory that involved the rescue of his nephew Lot, Abram, I'll call him Abraham uh, for the sake of just ease, Abraham returned from the battle and he was greeted by two kings. One was the king of Sodom who went out to meet him. He was very, very thankful for Abraham's victory over these other kings, but he was a very wicked king, very evil king, and thus Abraham refused this king's attempt to bless him in any way. But Abraham was also greeted by a second king by the name of Melchizedek, and he was the king of Salem, and uh, he came out in order to greet Abraham following that particular victory. Now concerning this Melchizedek, there are many Bible teachers and many Bible scholars and students that believe that Melchizedek was and is a Christophany, that he was an Old Testament uh, appearance of the Lord Jesus himself uh, in, in pre-incarnate in the Old Testament. There are others who believe that Melchizedek was a historical figure, a man, uh, no different than you and I, but his description in the Bible by the Holy Spirit is carefully stated so as to be an Old Testament picture or a type of Jesus as our high priest. Now, there are many good Christians who believe on both sides of, of the issue, and uh, they agree to disagree agreeably on the issue because what a person believes on this point does absolutely no harm to the point that the Holy Spirit is making concerning Jesus as our high priest. I personally hold the second view and uh, believe that Melchizedek was a very, very strong type or Old Testament picture uh, of Christ, but not Christ himself. Now, notice his description of Melchizedek 
in verses 1 through 3, the writer tells us that he was the king of Salem, and Salem refers to the city that would ultimately become known as Jerusalem. We're told that he was the priest, was priest of the Most High. So in Melchizedek, we see something very, very important in the Bible. We see the combining of the offices of king and priest, just as we see in Jesus. We notice in verse 1 that he blessed Abraham when Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings. And Abraham gave a tenth, a tithe, of the spoils of the battle to Melchizedek. And then notice in verse 2, two very interesting titles that are ascribed to Melchizedek. His name, we're told, means king of righteousness. And his title, king of Salem, means king of peace. And so his names were fully realized in Jesus, in Christ. Jesus is the king of righteousness. John wrote in his first epistle, and he said, My little children, these things I write to you, that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in his second epistle, and he said, For he, that is the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is also the king of peace. Jesus declared of himself, he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let, your heart, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Elsewhere Jesus uh, spoke, and he said, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world." And the point that is being made here by the writer is that as a high priest, Jesus provides us with a righteousness and a peace that the Levitical priesthood never could. He continues his description of Melchizedek in verse 3, saying that he is without father or mother, not speaking necessarily of the fact that he was uh, uh, parentless in actuality, but in terms of the biblical record, the portrait that the Holy Spirit paints of him in the Old Testament, there's no mention of his parents. He is, in verse 3, we're told, without genealogy. There's no mention of his genealogy, which is significant because the book of Genesis and the other books that make up the law, there and he begat, 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 and there's so many genealogies in those books. Genealogies are important to God, and they're important to us, but there's no mention of Melchizedek's genealogy because... While genealogies were critical in the order of the Aaronic priesthood, it is not important in being a priest in the order of Melchizedek for the simple reason that our high priest, as our high priest, Jesus, and the, in the order of Melchizedek, will never die, he will never vacate the position, and so there is no need for him to be replaced." We're told further in verse 3 that he had neither beginning of days nor end of life. And so 
a picture of eternal life. And then in verse 3, also that he was made like the Son of God. It does not say that he was the Son of God. And that's one of the reasons I'm inclined to believe that uh, he was a type of Christ. If he actually was a Christophany, a pre-incarnate Old Testament appearance of Christ, then the writer would have just simply said he was Christ. But he doesn't do that. He says that he was like the Son of God. And, verse 3, that he remains a priest continually. Now, Melchizedek is mentioned three times in the Scriptures. The first time he's mentioned is in Genesis chapter 14. And then as quickly as he is mentioned, his name is dropped, and there follows a thousand years of silence until David comes on the scene a thousand years later, and he writes a psalm, Psalm 110, and he makes mention of Melchizedek again. And then, interestingly enough, there is another thousand years of silence concerning Melchizedek in the biblical record until the writer of the book of Hebrews mentions his name again repeatedly in this book of Hebrews, quoting from Psalm 110, verse 4. Now, in Psalm 110, the Holy Spirit does a remarkable thing. It's a messianic psalm. It is a description, an Old Testament description, of the Messiah, of the Savior that God would send into the world. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm. In fact, I believe it's the most quoted Old Testament passage of Scripture in the New Testament because of how strongly it testifies to Jesus as the Messiah and as the Savior of the world. And in Psalm 110, the Holy Spirit, through David, does a remarkable thing and, and, is, and, uh, and very much worth the effort of hanging in related to all of this. He does a remarkable thing in that he describes the Messiah in four ways. He declares that when the Messiah comes, he will be divine. He will be a king, he will be a priest, and he will be a judge. Of the Messiah as priest, David wrote, Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And the fact that the Holy Spirit declared that the Messiah would be both king and priest, was a source of great confusion for the Jews. They knew that the promised Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah because the Old Testament Scriptures prophesied that He would. For example, through the Jewish patriarch Jacob in Genesis chapter 49, it was declared, he prophesied, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. In other words, a ruler will come from the tribe of Judah who will never be replaced as the ruler of God's people. God had promised through David that he, the Lord, would bring the promised Messiah into the world through David's bloodline. Second Samuel chapter 7 verse 16. But God spoke through Nathan the prophet to David and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established 
forever, speaking of the fact that Messiah would come through David's bloodline, and David was of the tribe of Judah. And so Jesus did come into the world through the bloodline of the tribe of Judah. Revelation chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. John the Apostle is in that heavenly scene, and he declares of himself, And so I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scrolls and to loose its seals. So everyone knew that when the Messiah comes into the world, he will be born into the world through the tribe of Judah. But David in Psalm 110 also declared that Messiah would be a priest. The priestly tribe of Israel was the tribe of Levi. The Levitical priesthood, the high priest, they all came through the bloodline. They all had to be from the tribe of Levi. Now that creates a very big problem. And in fact, so big a problem, it created uh, what was considered to be virtually an impossible problem in the mind of the Jews. Because in their minds, the Messiah could either be king or priest, but he could not be both. Because he could not be a descendant of both the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Levi at the same time. If he is of the tribe of Levi, he cannot be the Messiah, he cannot be the king. And if he is of the tribe of of Judah, then he cannot be the priest. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot have the Messiah claiming to be both king and priest. He will have to choose one or the other. Now, given this seeming contradiction, they chose to largely ignore those passages in the Old Testament that spoke of Messiah as priest. And they emphasized the teaching of the Old Testament passages that the Messiah would come into the world as a king from the tribe of Judah. And so their solution to what appeared to be a contradiction to them was to ignore this passage that described Messiah that declared Messiah would be a priest, and instead they emphasized the fact that Messiah would be a king born of the tribe of Judah. And so for a thousand years, the prophecy of David concerning the Messiah as being a priest, it gathered dust in the corner of the prophetic library of the Old Testament. Until a thousand years later, the writer of the book of Hebrews walks into that library. He walks over to that corner. He blows a thousand years of dust off of this prophecy concerning the Messiah. And he puts it back into play in people's thinking. And in doing so, he reminds the world that God had prophesied that Messiah will not be a priest after the order of Aaron or after the tribe of Levi, 
but according to the order of Melchizedek. And that just as Melchizedek had the double role of priest and king in Jerusalem in Genesis chapter 14, so too the offices of king and priest would be united forever over all of humanity in Messiah, in Jesus. And that this was no invention of the writer of the book of Hebrews and not even an invention of David, but was also spoken of by the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13, speaking of the Messiah. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord, he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. The combining of the priest and king and the council of peace will be between them both. And through David, God had declared to the entire world a thousand years before Jesus that he, that is God, was going to establish another priesthood for Messiah without the limitations of the former priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. He would establish a new priesthood that would forever and ever only have a membership of one so that when it happened, everyone would recognize that it was fully ordained by God as the as fully ordained by God as the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. Now, one day on the day before of, of Jesus' crucifixion, on the morning of his crucifixion, he was examined by a council of religious leaders that included Caiaphas, who was the high priest at that time. And Jesus was accused of blasphemy for telling them the truth about himself, and that is that he was and he is the Messiah and the Son of God. And in response, Caiaphas, the high priest, were told in Matthew chapter 26, he tore his robe or his clothes or his robe, and he accused Jesus of blasphemy. And as he tears his robe, in that scene, the symbolism is very, very significant, and it's completely lost to him. But it's not lost to Jesus and hopefully not lost to us. What Caiaphas didn't realize was that on this day, more than his robe as the high priest was going to be torn. On that day, the day of Jesus' crucifixion, the entire Levitical priesthood was to be torn in half. It was to give way to a new priesthood, one according to the order of Melchizedek. And to confirm that this exact thing had occurred, just a few hours later on that same day when Jesus died on the cross, the Father Himself, who had sworn and would not relent a thousand years earlier that He would make the Messiah both king and priest, reached down right into the temple itself 
and he tore, by a miracle, tore the veil, separating the holy place from the holy of holies from top to bottom. And why did he do that? Because from that moment on, access to God came that no longer came through the Levitical priesthood, but now through a single priest, a single priesthood of one, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, who alone provides us with an unparalleled access to God and an unparalleled intimacy with God, which is exactly what the Father desires. Now, one of the fascinating things about Psalm 110 verse 4 is that there is no way that that verse can be understood apart from its messianic fulfillment in the New Testament. In all of human history, all of the billions of people that have come and gone in human history, all of this points to one single person and one person alone, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. And the fact that Jesus is a priest from the kingly tribe of Judah not only is not a cause for unbelief related to him, but is a cause for faith. Now let me close this morning by briefly bringing out the implications of all of this as the writer gives us three reasons why the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek is greater than the Aaronic priesthood. Number one, he tells us in verses 4 through 10, and I'm summarizing incredible depth that he's, the writer has put here. But the priesthood according to Melchizedek is greater than the Aaronic priesthood, number one, in that it, it, demonstrated in, it is demonstrated in the fact that Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, number one, and number two, that he received Melchizedek's blessing. You talk with a Jewish person and you talk with them about Abraham and you can't talk about anyone more significant in the whole Old Testament to them. I suppose it would be a running tie between Abraham and Moses. Abraham was the father of the nation. He was the man that God chose in human history to birth this group of people called the Jews through whom he would give gift the world with the two greatest things that the world possesses, and that is, number one, the Old Testament Scriptures, and number two, the Savior of the world. And yet here is the incomparable Abraham, and when Abraham comes into contact with Melchizedek, he recognizes Melchizedek to be greater than even he is. And he publicly demonstrates it by giving a tithe to Melchizedek and then allowing Melchizedek to bless him. And as the writer brings out, the greater always blesses the lesser. And so the point that he is making here is that when Abraham, the great father of the nation of Israel, came into contact 
with Melchizedek. He recognized Melchizedek to be superior, didn't have any problem acknowledging the superiority of Melchizedek compared to himself, doing so publicly. And if Abraham had that attitude toward Melchizedek, then then no descendant of Abraham should have a problem acknowledging the superiority of the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek over the Levitical priesthood. Say la. Amazing. Amazing. The handling of the Scriptures by the writer of the book of Hebrews. Second, the priesthood according to Melchizedek is superior because the Aaronic priesthood could make nothing perfect. That's the point he makes in verses 11 through 22. So now he he goes from answering questions that he anticipates the reader is going to ask of him to now posing one of his own questions, which is really best stated there in verse 11. And basically what he's saying is this. If perfection could be attained through the Levitical priesthood, then why in the world did God speak of another priesthood to come through David 400 years after the giving of the law of Moses and the establishing of the Levitical priesthood? If the Levitical priesthood was the end game as it relates to God concerning priesthood, and he established it under Moses, why 400 years later under David does he mention a second priesthood? And the answer is because God never intended the Levitical priesthood to be God's final word concerning the priesthood. He had always intended to supplant the Levitical priesthood with something superior, a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. Number three, the priesthood according to Melchizedek is superior to the Aaronic priesthood based upon the fact that it is an unchanging priesthood. And he brings that out in verses 23 through 28. It's important to notice as you see him quote Psalm uh, 110 verse 4 in verse 17, to notice that word forever. The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, this priesthood according to Melchizedek is a priesthood that is made up of only one priest. For the simple reason, he speaks of priest, one priest, for the simple reason that this high priest, unlike the Old Testament high priest, will never die in this role. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And because Jesus will never die in his role as our high priest, he needs never to be replaced. This is a forever, no interruption due to death priesthood. And thus, we're told in verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. 
And he is personally able to do this because he will never vacate the office of high priest for any reason, including death. I like in verse 26 that description of Jesus as a high priest that is fitting for us. He fits us. (laughs) When you look at Jesus and you look at what he has brought to mankind, what he has brought to our lives as a Savior and as a high priest, he is a perfect match for our need. Jesus really is a sinner's Savior, and no one knows that more than God. And no one knows that more than the Holy Spirit. He's a perfect match for our every need, both as our Savior and as our high priest. Now I come to the point, knowing full well, that I have stretched many of you mightily for the last however many minutes. I didn't even turn on my stopwatch. I forgot, so I don't know how. Here's the point, if you don't take anything else away from from all of this. Look at the astonishing detail of God involved in our salvation and involved in our personal relationship with Him. Look at all of the thought, all of the complexity, all of the beauty, all of the nuance, all of the things large and small that are bound up in this Savior and in this salvation. This salvation is not only a powerful salvation, but it is a wise salvation. It's a salvation that will stretch the greatest minds in terms of looking and saying, look at the foundation that God has been laying for thousands of years in human history, even when the foundation was completely ignored by the people that He had called to represent Him in the world. And all the time knowing that we would need a Savior who would be both sacrifice and high priest for us to enjoy the relationship that we have with God today. And so people say, I just believe that everyone gets into heaven by being a good person. Or I believe all roads lead to heaven. And a passage like this says, shh, shut. You don't know what you're talking about. And you don't know the depths of what you are intruding into with such shallow, meaningless thoughts.
in the light of the majesty of what is described in the scriptures. And the considerable thought that has gone into our salvation to provide us with a true salvation and a sure salvation that meets all of our needs. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you have not yet put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to do that. God has done everything that he can but force you to do so. He has given you every reason physically, emotionally, and mentally, and intellectually for you to put your faith in the Christ, in the Messiah, in the King and Priest that he has sent into the world so that you might know God and know him personally. And there are going to be pastors and there are going to be other men and women up in front immediately after the service. And they would love to pray with you to put your faith in so great and awesome a Savior as we have read about here this morning. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we are humbled by your love. We are humbled by your power. And we are humbled by your peerless wisdom. Thank you, Lord, this morning for our Jesus. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for all that he is, Lord. And the perfect match that he is for our every need and for how rich you have made us in him. And we thank you in his name, in Jesus' name, amen.